you will, let's turn to the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 7 this morning. John chapter 7, and we'll be covering verses 32 through 52. John chapter 7, verses 32 through 52. I want to share with you what my objective is for today. So here's the objective. So it's kind of lengthy, so I'll take my time reading through it. Here's the objective. To see the justice, the mercy, and the holiness of God in the categories of both the spiritually alive and the spiritually dead. And here's part two of my objective. Part two is this. And to see how the filling of Christ into His children should result in rivers of living water. Now I'll read through it more quickly. To see the justice, the mercy, and the holiness of God in the categories of both the spiritually alive and the spiritually dead, and to see how the filling of Christ into His children should result in rivers of living water. Now in this text, I've broken it up into three different teaching points. There's probably a lot more that you can extract from this text, but for the sake of time and uh, for just the sake of our, our, our own bandwidth here, we're just going to cover these three these three sections as far as an outline is concerned. And here's the outline. I want to talk about the warning, first of all, the warning that Jesus gives to specifically the unbelievers in this first century context, but also the warning that's universal here to all who are in unbelief. So there's a warning that's given, as he's already given several warnings, and this is no different. This one kind of ups the ante a little bit, It's a little bit stronger of a warning, but it's a warning nonetheless. So the warning, the invitation, we're going to see that there's an invitation that's giving, so we're going to move from this really strong language to the Lord, showing mercy and showing grace, as well as showing His justice, and then moving to the expectation. And the expectation is more of what I should see in you as followers of Christ, and what you should see of me or from me as a follower of Christ. So hopefully this will be very practical, especially when it gets towards the end, as well as revealing to us through Jesus, through his life, through his ministry, through his words and works, some of the nature of God as, uh, as the man, as the God-man Jesus Christ. So first the warning, but before we get into the warning, let me kind of give you a uh, give you a, a bit of an approach up to this text. And so we'll notice a few things here in chapter 7. If we're going to start in verse 32 as far as the teaching, I want to back up to verse 30. I want to back up to verse 30. If you recall last week, these questions were being raised. These questions were being asked as far as where Christ came from. They were not believing that he's the Messiah because... They thought that they would know where, because they knew where Jesus came from. Jesus came from his mother Mary and from Joseph. But according to the official statement or the official belief of the Sanhedrin, this is not what people held to. They rightly held to the fact that Jesus would come from Bethlehem, that Jesus would, uh, would, would be as the prophets had foretold. But they're completely missing the picture here. So they're asking Jesus not to rehash last week's sermon, but they're 
But they're asking these questions. And they're doubting and people are getting angry and it says that they were desiring to kill Him. And then it gets to verse 30 when it says, so they were seeking to arrest Him, but no one laid a hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in Him and they said, when the Christ appears, will He do more signs than this man has done? And this is interesting because it seems that although many were angry and there were questions and doubts that were going on, there seems to be a selection of people whose interests have really been piqued at this point. They see these signs and they see these wonders of Christ and they hear this teaching and maybe, maybe what the text is revealing to us is that they just can't dismiss Him. So they start debating in their own minds whether or not this could be the Christ. And as this takes place, we're led to verse 32, which says the Pharisees heard the crowds muttering. And what are they muttering? They're muttering this debate between themselves. Could this be the Christ? What about His signs? What about His wonders? When the Christ appears, will He do more signs than this man has done? And the Pharisees heard this. They heard their mutterings. They heard their questions. And this concerned them. It says, when the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest Him, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to Him who sent me. And here's the warning. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. You will seek me, and you will not find me. He says, there's coming a time where I won't be with you, and it's just a little while longer, about six months from this point before Jesus goes to the cross. And he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave this place. I'm going somewhere else. You will seek me, and you're not going to find me. And let me, let me make this very clear. What he's not saying is that you will try to arrest me, but I will evade you that I will be elusive enough that you can't find me. Make no mistake about it. They're only going to be successful in arresting and killing Christ according to God's time, according to what God's hand and plan had predestined to occur. This is what the book of Acts teaches us, right? But Jesus is not saying that You'll seek me and not find me. You'll seek to arrest me and you won't find me. This is, this is not what he's saying. This is a warning. This is a strong statement of eternal judgment. He is saying, one day it will be too late for you. He's saying, one day, you who are in unbelief, one day when darkness falls, and at the end of all things, you'll realize, oh my God, what have I done? It will be too late for you. There will be nothing else that can be done for you. Nothing. There will be no rescue when darkness falls. We remember Genesis 6, the great flood account. Noah warned the multitudes for a long time, but when the flood waters representing God's judgment ensued, it was too late for all those who refused to believe Noah's message. For 120 years, the Scripture teaches us, 120 years, 
He's saying, hey, this is coming. A flood's coming. I know it hasn't rained ever at this point in Genesis history, but it's coming. God, who is faithful, God, who is sovereign, has said, this is going to come, and you're going to have to be in this boat that you're constructing in order to survive the floodwaters that will encompass the entire globe. But no one listened. No one listened to Noah's message. No one heeded the warnings of God. Now the scripture doesn't tell us that they were clawing and scratching at the, at the boat, or at least my recollection, my, I don't recall those things. If it says it, I, I didn't see it when I, uh, when I refreshed my memory of the story the other night. But either way, you can guarantee this, there was regret that came over those unbelieving people when these floodwaters came. When they saw the water levels rising, you have to assume that they knew it's too late. And there's no rescue for them. I'm sure they fought for their lives. I'm sure they tried to do whatever they could to survive. But God's agenda was to wipe the planet of most of the race of men. And he did it. He did that. And Christ's message to the unbelieving Jews and to all unbelievers in this text is the same sentiment. It's the same sentiment for those that died because of the flood. The same sentiment is true here. He's saying, if you reject my message, if you reject me and you die that way, or if you reject my message, one day it will be too late. You will seek me. Again, not to arrest him, but you will seek him for hope, for rescue, for refuge. You'll seek me, but you won't find me. It'll be too late for you, is what he says. You'll seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. You cannot come because the only way to get to where I'm going is through Jesus. And if you don't have Jesus, if you haven't, as the Scriptures say, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no entry into that place that He's going. So when darkness falls, there will be no rescue for those who are in unbelief. And let me ask you this. Does this call into question the grace of God? You think about it. Does this call into question the grace of God? That Jesus would say, you will seek me. You will want me to rescue you from judgment and from doom. But you won't find it. Like Esau, who sought the Lord with eyes filled with tears. And yet there was no restoration for Esau. And yet there was no repentance for Esau that led to his salvation or his being right with God the Father. Does this call into question the grace of God? One might ask whether or not it's loving or fair that Jesus would draw a line at a certain point not allowing anyone to be saved no matter what they profess. And it's important that we understand this reality and that is that God is holy and we as humanity, as His creation, have dared to become an offense to that holiness. 
The imagery is so very clear in Romans 9 where Paul is writing and explaining this relational dynamic between the potter and the clay. And he says, Who are you as clay to say to the potter, Why have you formed me this way? Why have you formed me for this? If you want to speak in current terms or today's terms, God, why have you formed me in this way? Why is it that I have cancer now as a 30-year-old man? Or why is it that I'm having these problems in my marriage as a 45-year-old woman? Or why is it that my child was taken from me? Who are you as creator to form me this way, to form my life this way, to set my life on this particular trajectory. You see, in the New Testament, Paul is anticipating these kind of questions to be presented based on some of his teaching in earlier Romans 9. But the way that he responds in that specific context is absolutely applicable for our context now, and that is that we are clay, and that God, as the sovereign of the universe, does as He pleases, and whatever He does, according to the Scriptures, is fair and good and a product of His perfections. God is holy. Our cavalier Christianity is offensive. I'll tell you some things that are offensive. And we're an offense to God all the time. All of our sin, an offense to God. It has to be by nature, His holiness. He is repulsed by our sin. All sin is a great offense to God, which is why He must dispense justice on sin. For us, for those who are in Christ, thankfully, by the grace of God, Christ received that punishment for my sins of yesterday, my sins of today, and my sins of the future. But on any given day that my Christianity is cavalier, it's an offense to God. Thankfully, Christ has died for that, but it's an offense to God. It's an offense to His holiness. Our indolent or lax approach to His Word, to prayer and to personal evangelism, is an offense. When we table prayer, which we do, and when we table the Word of God and, and, and applying it to our life and letting it saturate our lives and, and saturate our minds and be hidden in our hearts so that we might not sin against Him. When we table those things or put those things to the side because we have more pressing matters, it's an offense to God. Our take-it-or-leave-it allegiance or commitment to Christ's church is an offense to God. And God is holy. So this warning, this warning of what Jesus said is, is clear and consistent. And it is a clear and consistent presence throughout the entire Bible. Let me give you some examples in the book of Proverbs chapter 1 starting in verse 24. Let me just read some of this to you so you can say that Jesus hasn't just arrived on the scene and he's saying something that's so very new. What Jesus is saying is consistent with things that have been said for many, many, many years at that time. Listen to what Solomon writes in Proverbs 1, starting at verse 24. He says, Because I have called you and 
You refuse to listen. This is Jesus speaking, and Solomon is writing. He says, because I've done these things, I've called you, because I've called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand, and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel, and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm, and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Doesn't this sound the exact same when compared to what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 7? He says, they will seek me diligently, but they will not find me in Proverbs. But they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. It doesn't stop there. If we look forward to the book of Luke, Luke records the same kind of language. Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 24, Luke says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. Or I should say, Jesus says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter, and they will not be able When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Open to us, Lord. Then he will answer you. And listen to this. This is what he says. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and we drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say this. I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Even the prophet Isaiah says, Seek the Lord where he may be found, or while he may be found. Seek the Lord while he's near, implying that there's a time that he will not be found, and a time that he will not be near. The sentiment is very clear. The language is very clear. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Trust, believe, put on the Lord Jesus Christ because there will come a time where you will seek and you will not find him. And this is a strong but clear warning. Is God unfair? Is it unfair for him to do this? Does it call into question his divine grace? Be careful not to clothe God with the garments of humanity's fairness. The fact that any of us are in right fellowship with God through Jesus is lavished grace upon grace, infinitely more than you and I deserve. Let that rest on you for a moment. Jesus gives this warning, and what is their response? How do they respond to Jesus in verse 35? The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go? that we will not find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and to teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? In where I am, you cannot come. Maybe you can't see it that clearly, but what is happening here is mockery. They're mocking Christ. Where do you think you're going to go that we can't find you? You're going to go to the Greeks? You're going to go to the dispersion? Those Jews scattered abroad or scattered throughout the Roman Empire, is that where you're going to go? You don't think we can find you? 
The Jews completely missed the obvious statement by Jesus regarding his going to heaven with the Father. Completely missed it. But then again, you're dealing with natural minds that can only see natural things. They cannot receive or believe or comprehend the supernatural. The lost mind, listen to this church, the lost mind will think of anything but God. It will try to rationalize everything through secular or natural lenses. It does not conceive of the supernatural, again, because it cannot. This explains why the proponents of the Big Bang Theory and evolution, as opposed to intelligent design, cling so tightly to a secular rationale. Despite its theory, despite its position being completely untenable, they still cling to it because the natural mind cannot perceive of the supernatural things. This was Nicodemus's problem. This was the woman at the well's problem, at least at first. And this is the same problems suffered by the Jewish unbelievers in this immediate context of John chapter 7. Make no mistake about it, there's a very strong but clear warning that Jesus is offering here. With a universal application to all who believe, whether it was a first century Jew in unbelief or a 21st century citizen of Greenville County that is in unbelief, the outcome is still the same. The warning is still the same. That one day you will seek me but you will not find me because where I am, you cannot come. But Jesus shifts gears. He gives this warning, but he also offers this invitation. Here's the divine grace of our Savior. On one hand, he's saying strong things and offering strong warnings, but in the next breath, he's saying, but there is hope because I'm still here. You can still come. And then he offers this invitation for them to come. Look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day. This is the climax of the week, everyone. The climax of the week, the great day Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and to drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Let him come to me and let him drink. Every man thirsts. Every man. Being thirsty is not something uncommon to the minds and to the lives of those who live in such an arid and dry region of the world. Jesus has already made this clear in his teaching that every man thirsts. He is building upon and reiterating what has already been said. He told Nicodemus that every man must be born again. Nicodemus had a thirst. He had a thirst. And his thirst was, I need new life. And Jesus says, here's how you find it. You must be born again. When Jesus encountered in John chapter 7, the woman at the well, he says, I am the living water. I am the one that can satisfy you. Here's a woman who's thirsty, but only one thing can quench that thirst, and that's the living water offered by Christ. And every single one of us start off in a place of thirst that can only be quenched by Christ as the living water, that can only be quenched through the gospel of Jesus. Every man must be born again because every man is born estranged 
from God. He says, everyone who thirsts, and that's everyone. So he identifies the people. And then he calls them to action. He says, everyone, because all of you thirst. All of you in unbelief, you thirst. You may not know what for, but you thirst. He says, come. Everyone who thirsts, come. One theologian explains that coming to Christ is simple, yet very specific. It's not come to the Lord's table. It's not come to join the church. It's not come to the waters of baptism. It's come to Christ and no other. Being the king of the universe means that you don't have to compete with others for the affections of your creation. The scripture is clear that we can't serve two masters. Christ and Christ alone is our Savior. Christ as the creator of all things, as the Lord of all things, doesn't have to share the platform with any of his creation. He is over his creation. There is a heavenly throne for him. There is a position for him there ruling and reigning over all his creation. So there is no such thing as a competition with Jesus. Of course, we choose to split our affections all the time. We split our affections all the time. But Jesus paid a price so that you don't end up separated from Him. So that you don't end up in hell because of your split affections and your divided interests. Jesus was punished for your split affections, for your divided interests. Those days that we table prayer and we table the word of God that we table personal evangelism that we table personal holiness and purity those days that we say you know what I'll put that aside I had a good Sunday today's Monday I'm going to live for me and then we have these new masters that are erected in our life those are split affections and we do it all the time as John Calvin said our hearts are idle factories it's true But Jesus paid for those split affections. That's why he could say, come. Come. But he doesn't just say to come. He says to drink. To drink signifies making Christ your own. There's an experiential aspect to salvation. It's more than knowing. It's experiencing. It's having it applied to you. It's having Christ and His gospel applied to you. No one's thirst has ever been satisfied by acknowledging the hydrating quality of water. I do a lot of backpacking. You know this. You get thirsty when you're hiking mile after mile after mile, carrying 30 pounds on your back. Well, I carry 30 pounds on my back. Some of my buddies who are trying to go minimalist, carry 15 or less. Either way, we get thirsty. We get thirsty, and I need to be hydrated. My body wants that. I, 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 I desire that. I'm fully aware that I'm dehydrated. I'm fully aware that I need water because I have a thirst. But 
acknowledging that there's a water source or acknowledging that I need to be hydrated doesn't do me any good. I have to tap into that source. I have to experience that water. This is what Jesus taught with the crowd when he said you must drink of my blood and eat my flesh. Remember when we talked about and here's the same thing. He's saying drink, take me in, experience me, become one with me in that sense. And you'll have life and you'll be satisfied. Those who drink of the fountain of living water will not only be satisfied, but there will be an outpouring from them that's indicative of the filling that's within them. I want you to see this because we're moving from this invitation and into the expectation that I see here in the text. Notice how Jesus has provided this great contrast, this strong warning of you will seek me and you won't find me because you cannot come where I'm going to be. And then he says, if anyone thirsts, so he's looking out and he's saying, all of you have a thirst. Every single person that my eyes can see and beyond, you have a thirst. And he's saying, you come to me, you drink to me. Don't come to him, don't go to her, don't go to any other thing, but you come to me. And me alone. And he says, I will fill you up. I love the imagery of the fountain of living water. When Jesus speaks to this woman at the well, again, remember, he says, I'm the fountain of living water. The imagery is this, that there is this endless fountain, this endless source for hydration, this endless source of life that just constantly pours into something. And what happens when you have a, a, a basin or a pitcher or something like that and you're pouring an infinite source into a finite or you pour it into a limited, in terms of capacity, basin, it's going to eventually overflow. And that's the picture here, is that Christ fills us, but we have a top, we have a brim. Eventually these things are to do what? They're to flow from us. Listen to what the text says. It says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, I'm in verse 38, by the way, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Living water. Out of his heart will flow living waters. Salvation is, in a sense, summed up this way. When Christ revolutionizes your life when he takes a dead heart and replaces it with a heart of flesh. So heart of stone, heart of flesh, transplant scenario. That fountain of living water starts to pour into you. It sustains you. It hydrates you. It gives you life. And it's a life that doesn't go away because it's from an endless source. This is the idea behind Jesus as our sustainer. He sustains us by constantly pouring grace, constantly pouring life, constantly holding us up. But then there's an expectation, and the expectation is that from that filling there will be an overflow. And that overflow will be rivers of living water. Sometimes when I get home, my kids are beside themselves with some information to share with me 
Marley runs up to me or Calvin runs up to me or sometimes even Wesley runs up to me. Wesley's a middle schooler, so he doesn't get as emotional as the other two right now. But inevitably, they come up to me from time to time, and they're just bursting. They're bursting to say something because they've had some kind of experience. Something, in a sense, has filled them that day, and they just have to say something. It might be absolutely nonsensical to me, but it matters to them. It might be that Calvin got on a good color. He got on pink as opposed to black or whatever color it is that you don't want at his school. And he just has to tell me. He's bursting at the seams. He's filled to the brim and it's starting to trickle over. You look at the kid and you say, okay, you've got something to say. Speak, son. Marley's the same way. She gets excited about all kinds of things that happen and she just has to tell me. And you can read it all over her face and in her body language because they've been filled by something and it just has to get out. I think this is the supernatural reality of being in Christ is that he fills you so the necessary the necessary and natural byproduct of being filled in that way is that it starts to overflow this is what he says this is what the text is saying i believe there's a pattern for this in scripture the disciples the disciples turned the world upside down after they had been filled with Jesus there's a specific part of Scripture where John and Peter, they see a man in the book of Acts who is lame. He's a lame beggar. Peter doesn't have any money to give to him, but what does Peter have? He says, I don't have gold, I don't have silver, but what I have is this. And he preached the gospel, or he, I'm sorry, he healed the guy. The guy gets up and he's praising the Lord, you know, it's, it's, it's this monumental celebratory occasion. And then what happens is Peter and John are arrested, as the disciples were, and they began to rebuke them, saying, don't do these things anymore. You're, you're causing a problem. You're causing a stink. And this is how they respond to the authorities. They say, you tell us not to do these things, but we cannot adhere to you. We serve God, not man. And then they say these things. They say, for how can we remain silent about the things that we've seen and the things that we've heard? Why would they give a response like that? It's because they were filled with Christ. And the byproduct of being filled with Christ is that the heart bursts forward with living water. Is Paul's story not the same way? How else do you explain a man like Paul who killed Christians to dying as a Christian for the sake of the gospel? The boldness in that man is unbelievable and the only explanation is he was filled by Christ and therefore Christ came out I'll give you a pop culture reference two words Kanye West whether you're sitting back waiting to see if this is all legitimate with him or not I'll say this all signs currently point to yes a man that was a misogynist, a man that was a pervert, a man that did all these things has supposedly encountered Christ. And sure, his theology may not be perfect. His Christology might not be impeccable. But this man is saying things and he's doing things that seem to be an indication of having been filled by something real. 
He's been filled by something real. I watched the other night, he goes on the Jimmy Kimmel Live show, and he stands there, and he's talking about this transformation that has happened in his life. And Jimmy Kimmel says to him, so can we expect, uh, would you call yourself a Christian artist now? And he said, man, I'm a Christian everything. I'm a Christian everything. Uh, James Corden does this carpool karaoke, but he did this airpool karaoke with with Kanye and Kanye's choir because they're doing their Sunday service thing. And so he's interviewing him for like 15 or 20 minutes. And, and then Kanye, toward the end, he basically says, I was, I was dead and now I'm alive. So he's speaking in language as someone who's been filled and he can't, he can't stay quiet. quiet. Is this not reminiscent to you of what the disciples said? Is this not reminiscent of those that would say, how can we remain silent about the things that we've seen and heard? Why would we not look at Kanye now and say, this guy might be looking back at his life and seeing how he was on this side, he was in darkness, and then there's been this massive transformation that he can only explain by being filled with Christ as he's come into a relationship with God the Father through Jesus. So what does this kind of outpouring look like in your life? What does it look like? I think it looks like showing mercy whether or not you've been shown it. It looks like offering grace whether or not you have received it from others. It looks like compassion for others. This is a concern for the spiritual well-being of others and a general concern for the basic well-being of others. I think it looks like looking out for the interest of others. It looks like a love for the Word, like the psalmist writes over and over and over again in Psalm 119 where he says, I will delight in your commandments. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day. He says, I love your commandments above gold. Consider how I love your precepts. He says, I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. I love your law. This is a man who's been filled to the point that it's overflowing. It looks like a love for worship and a love for Christ's church. And it looks like an urgency to see lives changed by the gospel. You see, church transformation from death to life means to be conformed, at least the beginning, into the image of Jesus. If we are now being conformed to His image, that means we are not only filled with Christ, but Christ then pours out of us. Living waters come in so that living waters can go out. This is a part of Christ's multiplication strategy. Save one. Fill him or fill her with Christ. Christ overflows onto men and women and children around that person in the workplace and enjoying hobbies and extracurricular interests. When Christ bursts forth in every area of your life, in every context, and not just the context of the local church on Sundays, when that happens, that's multiplication. That's the intent. And that's what we should want to be a part of. Let me finish with these thoughts. The next verse speaks of the Spirit of God. We won't get into that this week. But what Jesus is explaining is 
He's about to give them the comforter, going to give them the helper. When he ascends, he's going to give the Holy Spirit to dwell within Christians. Which my conviction and the way that I understand scriptures is that the Holy Spirit did not indwell believers until the ascension, until what Jesus calls his glorification. And this has not happened yet at this point in time. Or at least in, the, in this context of scripture. And we move on to verse 40. It says, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is a prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is this Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? Remember, they ordered, ordered him to be arrested. But they showed up empty-handed. They said, Why did you not bring him? The officer said, No one has ever spoken like this man. That's their response. No one has spoke like this man. Why did you not bring him? No one has ever spoke like this man. They had never heard or seen anything like Christ. One theologian said instead of arresting Jesus, they became arrested by Jesus. Or at least by his words. I pray that we too might be arrested by the words of Christ. That as the word of God himself, whose words are spirit and life, he would captivate our minds and our minds and, and attention and stir our heart's affection with every truth shared. How do Christ's words land on you, church? I pray, dear brother and sister, that his words bring you peace, hope, and endurance, courage, and conviction. I pray they empower you, and I pray that you always delight in his precious words. Let's pray.